we talk a lot about like find a mentor, find a sponsor. But I really, for me, it has been my friends, my like kind of wider peer group, younger, older, who have helped me make a lot of pivotal changes and jumps and leaps. So, hey, everyone, thanks for listening in again. And today we're here with Laura Brownstein, who uh, you'll see a recurring theme. Lots of these folks I've had the pleasure of working with, um, uh, which has been great, which makes me feel good because that means they're willing to come on and talk to me. So I must have done something right. But uh, Laura's had an incredible career, has done really, really amazing things from working on presidential campaigns to producing TV shows uh, and I mean, we're, we're going to hear all about it, um, but better to hear from you. So, Laura, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi. Uh, first of all, you know, number one Fano fan. So <laughs> that's one of my primary, you know, um, moments. Um, one of my designations. Um, <laughs> we definitely had some pivotal moments together. Yeah, we have. <laughs> we totally have. So right now I'm lucky enough to be the SVP of brand and creative at Clear, um, which many people probably know from the friendly people at the airport that help you get through security faster, but has a lot of kind of uses, um, helps you get into games, proving your vaccination when that's necessary, and all kinds of good things like that. And this is a long way um, from where I started. Um, I think I've been a storyteller my whole life, and my career has just been about telling stories in different places. So... All right, cool. I, I've already sort of like picking up on a theme. Okay. Um, I saw, you know, you did production, like I'm assuming straight out of school. But something I like to kick these things off with or these conversations off with is when did you feel like you had a sense of what you wanted to do? For You know, for a lot of people, it's when they kind of like pick a major. For some people, that you know, it's like a forced thing. Mm -hmm. But when did you feel like you had a sense like this is this is what I want my work to be? Um, you know, I remember writing stories in my fourth grade, um, language arts class and, um, Mrs. Cannell was very tough at Upper Nyack Elementary School and I wrote a story about mermaids, um, falling in love, of course, that, um, she really loved and it was a moment that really kind of solidified how much I liked to tell stories. I knew I loved to read stories as I think as an only child, especially I was um, a huge reader and um, not to out our ages, but when you and I grew up, there was a lot less video content to enjoy <laughs> a lot less content in general. So after you watched the show that was on right then, um, you know, you watch the Brady Bunch when you came home from school and then as an only child, it was pick up a book time. And, um, you know, a lot of the books I read featured women who found their kind of independence and success writing and telling stories, um, which is not something someone 
something someone should push into. But, you know, Little Women, Louise May Alcott, the main character is a stand-in for her and is all about um, telling stories and writing. And um, that always really resonated with me. So I think I always knew I was going to tell stories in some way. As um, Jewish parents in the 80s, my parents, um, you know, expected me to be a doctor until my D plus and freshman bio at Cornell. And <laughs> then they were like, okay, so maybe not on the doctor thing. Um, seems like you're good at a couple other things. So let's go with that. Um, and I didn't tell them that that was largely because I bio was at 9am and I was too hungover to go to class <laughs> times freshman year, first semester, because, um, it was all very exciting. So, um, yeah, I think I always knew I was going to tell stories. I was always fascinated by politics and knew I would do something in between. And, um, you know, one of my kind of, I went to, grew up in a great place, but I didn't necessarily go to a high school where being um, smart was cool, especially for girls. And I worked a lot I think on finding ways to be heard while not sounding like I knew too much. And, you know, a lot of the classic tropes that you read about women kind of cutting their own power when they talk, I was a hundred percent doing. There was a lot of like, well, like, I don't know. And maybe, and I learned that when I raised my hand in class, if I sounded unsure of what I said and didn't use big words, it was better received um, by those around me. And I will never forget, I've told him this story, my freshman year of college, I was in a writing seminar um, with the boy that I had a crush on. Like the boy that I like, you know, sat and listened to him like play guitar until like one in the morning and was like, you're so talented. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You're so deep. And and he was a great, lovely, he is a great, lovely guy. Um, But... The first day we were in a class together, I remember raising my hand and afterwards feeling like, you know, great about how I'd come off. And walking home back to our dorm from class, he said to me, why did you sound that way in class? And I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, when you and I are talking or when you're talking with our friends, you always sound kind of like pretty sure of what you are saying. You make these really like clear and cogent arguments And you just sounded like a different person. Like you didn't know what you were talking about and were using like all these like weird like phrases while like, well, I don't know. And even your voice changed. It got like higher or something. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, that's how it was like this like light on moment of like, wow, I have been tailoring my communication style to what I thought the audience would appreciate. And in my high school social studies class, that was one thing. And that is not what is going to serve me going forward in life. And it was this really, like, I still remember walking down this, like, snowy hill um, at Cornell, the mo- like, that conversation. And it was this moment of, like, oh, wait, I need to, like, nip this in the bud. I need to address this. And it was this real kind of, like, pivotal moment of, like, oh, I need to find a way to speak up a little bit more that um, really stuck with me. And I think it's something a lot of women and girls and probably people of any 
binary, non-binary gender have to kind of deal with at some point, kind of learning how to say what you think in a way that other people will engage with, but doesn't undercut what you're trying to say. And so you've kind of, your whole career is built on communicating and yeah. helping brands communicate and tell their story. And, you know, that's much more complicated than a person doing it because mm -hmm. a brand needs to invoke um, certain feelings and connect mm -hmm. with customers and different demographics. Um, so where was like the first time you started to put this awareness like into, into motion or into action? So I am um, going to date myself a little bit here, but I did intern in college um, for Dee Dee Myers in um, the Clinton White House. And it was, um, they weren't planning on having interns that semester for myriad reasons. And it was early on in the administration. And I just kind of kept calling and talked my way into the into having an internship, even though they weren't planning on doing it. I remember Dee Dee Myers, who was the press secretary at the time, her assistant finally said to me, if I let you come in for an interview, will you stop calling me back? Will you stop calling me? And I was like, yeah. So I think getting to work in the Clinton press office um, under Dee Dee Myers um, and George Stephanopoulos was the first time I got to really see kind of storytelling with with impact and kind of how telling a story well could move hearts and minds and progress and telling a story poorly, which every administration does some of both, really just kind of kills something, kills things. Like if you don't express it well, if you don't tell the story well, if you don't speak to what people care about, you won't get to do the things that you think are important to do. So it, you know, the, how big a role the comms played. Um, well, I want to yeah. come back to this one because I'm, I'm sure because later in your career, you've done other some things in politics. And I'm sure that this internship has somehow or another connected the two. Um, so I'd love because that's, I think, an important thing for people to see is that career decisions don't need to be super heavy, mm -hmm. but they can have these like compounding lasting effects. Yeah, um, that's a great the more strategic you can be about them. Um, all right, cool. So you did that. Um, I'm sure that was an incredible experience. It was an internship. So I'm assuming it was like for the summer. Um, it was during a semester. Oh, cool. Um, got to like live in DC, which, um, you know, I had the best time at Cornell, but Ithaca, New York is a long way from a being <laughs> metropolis. And, um, so going to spend the semester in DC was just like phenomenal. Um, then came back, went to finish up college and, you know, it was time to go work in New York city. And it, I always, people have asked like, Oh, when did you decide you wanted to live in New York? And, you know, there's that John Updike saying, you know, there is the feeling that people who live anywhere other than New York must sort of, must somehow be kidding. <laughs> and, it was never a decision I remember kind of consciously making. It was just like, well, where else would somebody want to live? New York City. That's that's where the things happen. That's where the advertising and the media and the publishing all happen. So I need to get there. So I um, got to work at Good Morning America 
Um, I was, I took a six-month maternity leave replacement, much to my parents' chagrin, doing, um, being the kind of assistant producer for the Sunday show. And it was kind of thrilling the like, you know, you're 22 and you're like in the green room with celebrities. And it was also like a good lesson in like taking a chance, like, I'm so glad I took a chance on doing something there for six months. I ended up being there for almost a year and then jumping into some other TV jobs. And, you know, I loved TV and I loved that kind of storytelling. And I loved that it was a combination of visual and I loved interviewing people. And as a producer, you got to like interview people off air, not always on camera. Um, and then one of my pivotal moments was I was working um, as a producer at like a daily news show um, that was like a syndicated show. And we were standing outside. I was standing outside with a crew where somebody who was um, being kind of hounded by the paparazzi and was very much in the news through no fault of their own. They were inside this building and we were standing outside of it with the crew just waiting for them to potentially walk out. And I just remember like looking and being like, this is not my life. This is bad. This feels like being part of the problem right now. Like this person didn't do anything to, in my mind, deserve this level of attention. They've made it clear that they don't want this level of attention. And I think I need a shift. And, you know, all the respect in the world for TV journalists, um, and the people out there kind of waiting to ask the hard questions. But it was a moment where I was like, this isn't where I feel like I need to be or should be. And I kind of sat back and I said, you know, part of it is that TV is such quick form storytelling. It would be great to get to go someplace that is a long, has longer, a chance to tell longer stories. And that was magazines. And this was, you know, Magazines were really, really big at the time. Like people bought magazines. It was a huge business. Um, people bought magazines by the millions on something called newsstands, which many people may not be aware of. Um, newsstands were great. You bought magazines. You had something to read on the subway or the plane. Um, you subscribed to them. They would show up at your house. Totally. I would like <laughs> get on a plane with like a stack of magazines every time. Um, and so I talked my way into a job at 17 magazine and I wanted to be an editor, you know, as I'd always done, but they quite wisely hired somebody for the opening open edit role who had experience, but we liked each other and we kept talking and, um, they took a chance on me and wanted more of a TV presence. And I basically felt and convinced them that PR was just um, producing backwards rather than kind of saying, here's the story I want to tell. Okay, who do I want to feature? It's like, okay, we want them to feature us. What story would we be featured in? What story should we suggest? So I got the job of being PR director for Seventeen Magazine. And it was a great kind of lesson in taking that foot in the door job. Like I didn't think I wanted to stay in PR, but I'm so glad I had 
two years doing magazine PR and then one year doing CorpCom at the company that owned Seventeen because knowing how to like think about public relations and media relations and how to tell your story via earned media, I think is a skill that is never not useful. It's kind of how to put your story out there in a way that other people will tell it the way you want them. You hope they will. And how'd that come about? Did you just like apply to it or like, well, you know, that, that's early in your career. You got a director job. I don't know if that was your first title. You were there for three years. So, you know, yeah. but you know, that's like, you didn't have that experience. You built that experience. That was a, like a big, yeah. You know, just so, you know, as for people like, cause I would imagine there's some amount of like hustle and deliberateness there, hopefully, maybe, <laughs> maybe got lucky, but I just think people benefit from hearing how people yeah. do this. So I thought about, I was a producer at a TV show at the time. And um, I was like, okay, who would have to answer my call? The PR person for the magazine. And so I left a message for the PR person on, um, you know, their voicemail. And they called me back and I said, I saw this job open. I started chatting and I was like, no, we totally need to get the magazine on the show more. And I was like, and honestly, there's a role I'm interested in. And she, of course, had called me back right away because she was the PR person. And so she kind of told me who to send a letter to. I sent a letter to that, to the editor in chief. And she was like, and I'll put in a good word for you. And I got a call to come in and interview. And then it turned out that girl that I made the connection with was leaving her job. And so there was an opening in PR. So we sort of played, I played through the whole process of trying to get the entertainment editor job I had been interested in. And Really, when that didn't work, it just, I managed to, we all liked each other and kind of just kept talking. And it was like a good lesson in kind of, if you're interested in a place, even if the job is not exactly what you're looking for, get, figure out how to get your foot in the door, figure out who would have a reason to call you back or email you back and, you know, jump in. I think there's a really good lesson there, which is kind of like understanding that the thing that they're hiring you for is not necessarily the thing you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But whether you were aware or not, you presented yourself as the solution to their problem. You're like, yeah, I could do that. Yeah. And you sort of like made the pitch, you told the story. And then once you got in, I'm sure you did all sorts of really interesting things, maybe a little bit of what was on that original job description, but you probably got to expand and learn, um, which I think then probably took you to your next role. Once I was there in house, I got to like, you know, magazines, even then when they were more well-funded, never had enough people. So when I would like volunteer to pitch in and write things, once I kind of spent the first year proving myself in the role I was hired for, then there was more latitude to try other things. And I think that's also important. You've got to kind of, I think, spend almost a year at least showing them the good faith that you are going to do a good job and put the effort into what they hired you for. And then you once you've proven yourself, you can kind of push into other things. And um, I am probably proud to tell you that I wrote the Buffy booklet in the back to school issue um, and the seminal quiz, Are You a Buffy? Um, <laughs> which maybe we could find for people. Um, but that was a really important question at the time. Are you a Buffy? And it was one of my... Um, first published magazine articles. Um, 
And then when I got moved into a corporate role at the company, which was getting moved up, which was exciting and was like a crash course on how corporate wor- the corporate world works. Like I learned words like EBITDA that I'd never heard before. <laughs> um, and, you know, the company had like a merger at the time. Primedia merged with about.com. And it was really sort of early for its time. And it was just interesting being a part of all that. But I knew I wanted to move towards editorial. And I knew that as the corporate comms person who was also helping out with some of the brands who didn't have their own PR people, again, I had something that people with decision-making power wanted. So I put that to good use and I would kind of, you know, go to the editor of newyorkmagazine.com and say like, hey, let's come up with a plan for how we're going to get you guys on the morning shows more, like the New York morning shows. And then say like, also, I'd love to pitch you a couple things. And it's like once you start the engagement, once you have a reason to start the conversation with somebody and you're showing them you can provide value on one level, they may give you the chance to provide value on another. And so I got a lot of clips under my belt during the year I was doing CorpCom. And um, that led to my first real editorial job, getting to be entertainment editor of the Ladies Home Journal magazine. And um, I was an entertainment editor um, for about five years there and then went on to Condé Nast and did the same job there. And what's kind of interesting about that is that when a large part of magazine's revenue came from newsstand sales, when they would sell a million on the newsstand, that was a huge amount of revenue. Being the person who did the work to get the celebrity on the cover and then edit and write those stories, that really mattered for the bottom line of the magazine. And so it was a really interesting strategic job. At some point, newsstands started to fall away, as we all know. And when newsstand was no longer a significant revenue driver for magazines, the job of entertainment editor, entertainment director, still interesting, but wasn't driving the bottom line in the same way. And that was when I felt like it was time to try something else. Um, A a friend of mine um, at one of my jobs once gave me the advice, um, dance close to the revenue, dance close (laughs) to the dollars. And it is so obvious, but such good advice. Thank you, Holly Whitten. Such good advice. Um, That the closer you are, your role is to what is driving revenue for the company, the safer you are. Like, that's a good, you want to be on the revenue side of things or be able to prove that your work has some way, some influence on it. Um, Jumped into um, a job at... um, Got to go work for Joanna Coles at um, Hearst at Cosmo Magazine, right when it was kind of really rehabilitating um, Cosmo as a political and kind of huge force and voice of women in multiple spheres. And we got to do a lot around kind of women and power and some of the first kind of um, conferences for young women. Mm which now there are so many of them, but we did um, fun fear, Cosmos Fun Fearless Life at Lincoln Center for 1,800 young women. And um, it was one of the 
one of the first for women on the kind of upwards trajectory, beginning of their career. Most of those kind of conferences have been for people kind of more, once they're a little more solidified and leaders in what they do. And I kind of get, it was like getting back to the live content that I had done in the beginning of my career with TV. And I realized I loved live journalism. Like I loved being able to like get people telling stories, having conversations, having revelations that come from the exchange of ideas, the electricity of an audience. Um, and that was great. Um, while I was there, I also kind of got to develop and launch Airbnb magazine, um, mm. which was a partnership between Hearst and Airbnb. And that was my first exposure to like hyper growth startup culture because we worked really closely with the Airbnb team and they were all brilliant and intense. And I kind of saw this whole new world that was really on the ascendancy and started to think that, you know, media wasn't the only place to tell good stories and brands were kind of using storytelling in these kind of innovative, cool ways and had the resources to do so, sometimes more resources to make good content than the media um, entities themselves. Yeah, and, it's interesting yeah. how you kind of built you know, a lot of the early parts of your career on a specialty in content. Yeah. And at, at that, then companies started to realize mm -hmm. that content could be an asset for them. And so what used to be another company's product yeah. became a whole nother industry's marketing. Yes, exactly. Which is, you know, when I first got, you know, my first job outside of the media world um, was at WeWork, um, being head of content. And everybody I told I got that job to, this was fall of 2018, were like, that's so cool. What is that? And <laughs> now if you look online, like head of content is like a normal job for a brand. Yeah. And it, in the fall of 2018, it really wasn't. People were like... What now? What's that? What do you do? Um, and, you know, parachuting into WeWork felt like entering another dimension from... How did that happen? Like, you know, so you did this Airbnb magazine, which I think was a huge success. Yep, it was um, great. And then I and talked my way into changing from a strictly editorial role at Hearst into um, editorial and business development. Because... I started to realize, and kind of as a theme, that um, the only way I was going to get to do cool shit was to find someone to pay for it, because um, the margins had changed. Close to that money again. <laughs> exactly. It was like realizing, like, oh, I got to get yeah closer to the money, closer to the revenue, and started kind of saying, okay, I want to do a whole thing on women in tech. Great, I'm going to go to CES and talk to a bunch of people and bring in some sponsors. And that is not, was not typically what an editor did, but I realized that was how I could do the storytelling I wanted to do. So um, I, the next thing I worked on and kind of developed and then closed the deal was a magazine for Bumble. Um, Whitney Wolf Heard is phenomenal. And um, we covered her very on and had her speak at events really early on in Bumble's trajectory at Cosmo. So we'd known each other for a couple of years and that was a lot of fun developing that magazine for them. 
And that really, once that kind of came together, it really showed like, oh, this is a real, like, this is a real job. Like companies need someone in-house to do this. So I said, okay, where do I, if, if I want to do this, I made a list of kind of all the companies in New York that I would most want to go to. And, you know, Twitter, I love, twi- I love Twitter. I love being on the platforms. So like Twitter was one of them. And then honestly, WeWork was towards the top of the list because it seemed like this exciting mission-driven New York-based, you know, unicorn startup. And I just basically started triangulating, who do I know that knows someone there? And um, our friend Jolie said, you should meet my friend Julie Rice. And I was like, Julie Rice, the founder of SoulCycle? Get the fuck out of here. And then I got to go in and meet the wonderful Julie Rice. And I fell in love with her in like two seconds. And she was like, yeah, you need to come work here, but it's going to take a while. I'll introduce you to, you know, my friend Jen Schuyler. That's probably who you should work for. But, you know, it'll take a minute. And it was big and scary. And Hearst had, like, kind of gotten wind that I was looking and kind of came to me with this incredible offer to stay. And it was like, do I leave kind of media, which has been my whole, pretty much my whole career, or do I, like, take this chance on, like, this whole new world? I was like, I think i got to push myself to do this scary thing and go try this. And um, I'm so glad I did, even though it, you know, turned into something you literally read about. Well, uh, lots of stories. So yes, give me a <laughs> As a collector and, uh, you know, uh, sharer yeah. of stories, you yeah. had lots of content. <laughs> lots of content, lots of crazy moments. It was before WeWork, I had run big teams for projects, but the most people at any one time I'd ever had reporting to me was maybe three or four. But I had run like big, like 50 person teams on like, like launch this new magazine or do this big event. And I didn't realize how different the two were until I was in the position of being lucky enough to lead this big, wonderful global team that when you're responsible for kind of people's career and it's very different to be able to rally a big group of people to do great work on a three-month project than it is to kind of really effectively lead a large group of people who are like on your team and are looking to you for like, what's next in my career? How am I handling this? Um, You know, I think to our detriment, us Gen Xers, we're not raised to kind of ask for advice and help in the same way millennials and now Gen Zs have been. And they kind of come and say, what's my career path? And can we talk this through? And that never would have dawned on me to do as a Gen Xer. Like, I don't know, we came home from school and nobody was there and it was not like. Yeah, there was also, there is a big difference between what I would call working in a project-based environment versus uh-huh. a product-based environment. Oh, interesting. And, that's a great point. And that's, a, that, that's a big difference, right? Because projects have these explicit end dates mm-hmm. um, and they're almost like an external pressure that stop it. Like you release it, okay, you know, next. And when you're, in a product-based company, 
it never stops, right? Like you have releases, but then you just, you know, I got to keep iterating on the product. And so there's this like continuum or continuity that's very different. You know, even just like staffing, when you're in a project-based culture, to your point, staff gets reshuffled (laughs) and people just work on projects. Um, And so it's it's a big difference. I don't think people really recognize that when they go from like an accounting firm to in-house or a PR firm to an in-house. That's a great agencies, These service firms just, they kind of operate in a very different way. And I kind of think it's cool for people to do both, but they need to recognize yeah. that they're very different. Totally. That's a great point. It, it was very different. And I'd never also run a global team before. So I suddenly had like 40, 50 people around the world and I was having to learn. I mean, I didn't honestly know what mattered in terms of social media in Seoul. Or in, you know, Buenos Aires. And it was like learning kind of, of course, how to best tell our stories, at which changed every day at WeWork, what the story we were telling to some degree, um, kind of in the U.S. and then the wider world. And that was also, I mean, I, it is a getting to work for a global company is a really great thing to get to do at some point. You, I feel like you just get so much more perspective and just realize we are, we are not the only audience and, you know, how, how and where you communicate is very different in different areas of the world. And what you have to worry about is really different. Um, you know, I remember one of the early things we did, there was a, people wanted to put out like a happy holidays, like have, um, have a great Christmas vacation. And it got pulled back because half the people, there were a large number of WeWork staffers around the world for whom Christmas was nothing to do with their lives. Um, And it was just a simple thing that was like, okay, this is different. Um, But WeWork, you know, was crazy and thrilling in like the crazy shit we got to do. And, you know, sometimes you got to do these like big things that were like, wow, we had money. We got to do this like huge global summit. And, you know, one of the fun things I got to do was this like dinner series um, with the James Beard Foundation to bring stakeholders together around a table talking about meatless eating and kind of elevate that in different communities that we were in. And that was like such a cool kind of thing to get to do with that a brand that is investing in its kind of community and its values gets, gets to do that kind of thing. And then of course I learned what to do and what not to do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So IPO, right. You'd never done that before. And that's kind of just kind of like a whole different animal on its own. And not a lot of people, you know, at least for me, I, I was already on, paternity leave and kind of leaving, but I got to see a little bit because I was like sort of halfway and halfway out. And that, you know, it's a really unique experience. Yeah. Um, you know, like something like it's just very foreign um, in, in the way that mm-hmm. process is handled and the things you need to do. And, um, you know, coming in as like a brand marketer. And I think that's one of the things that I think was tricky is it com- WeWork was a company that was able to leverage its brand and emotional yeah. storytelling in a very cool way. And sort of my take is just that that does not work when it comes to like an S1. Um, yeah. Yeah. SEC is not interested in um, how things feel quite as much as stories. You know, no, no stories. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
it was such a fascinating experience. And, you know, I have to say my new job, Clear, which I've been at Clear now for almost a year and a half, and it's been amazing. And we had an IPO in June um, that felt great. And it was so great to get to do one to kind of completion. And, um, you know, now having been part of two, you kind of, you see the patterns and what works and what doesn't and how much kind of smart, savvy leadership matters. Yeah. So kind of jumping around a little bit, I mean, one of the things in careers that I feel like you've done on kind of both sides, you've had jobs that you didn't have the experience for and you were able to make the pitch to do it. But mm-hmm. then you also now have a job where you did have the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of interesting as someone who's now hired, managed a lot more. Um, I'd be curious, like, what advice would you have for someone who, because obviously having that, you know, IPO might be a different category of knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's like, we will pay up for someone who's done that before because there's so much at risk and we can't risk yeah. not having someone who hasn't done it before. But I'd say the majority of skills aren't that way. Mm-hmm. So like, what what advice would you have for, because with so many pivoters like come through yeah. the Teal platform and you've done, so, so I would call like micro pivots, um, you know, kind of staying in the same category of occupation, but like what advice would you have for people to kind of make that pitch for a company to hire you, even though you don't have the exact skills? I, I think it's always kind of, you have to like look back in what you've done and find what is pertinent to the company's needs, even if that job wasn't expressly, didn't seem like a job that would have those responsibilities. So kind of just being able to see what the company is needing and kind of say like, I did find specific examples in your career of, you know, maybe it was when you were doing something completely different, but you had an experience that would be relevant. Just being able to cite specifically like, I dealt with this, here was the issue, and here's how I solved it, and here was the result. And I think with job interviews, and at this point, I've had the benefit of interviewing a lot of people and being on a lot of interviews, the more you can show concrete, I did this, like, here was the problem, here was how I handled it, and here was the result, kind of beginning to end. And again, it's telling a good story. It's having a beginning, middle, and end. Um the more prospective employer is going to take a chance on you. And I think also, you know, something I always ask in interviews um, is what are your pain points and what can I make better for you coming into this job? No one doesn't like that. No, no one doesn't like someone saying, how can I make your life easier? And then when they tell you, hopefully honestly, like, here are my pain points, here's what I need, then you can say, like, that makes sense. Here's how I would address those needs. So get the person to tell you what, they're, what they really need. One of the biggest themes, and I kind of haven't directly hit on it, but I think I've mentioned some things. Um, I am a big believer in um, your friend mentors. Your friend, I call them your friend tours, trademarked. Um, <laughs> You know, we talk a lot about, like, find a mentor, find a sponsor. But I really, for me, it has been my friends, my, like, kind of wider peer group, younger, older, who have helped me make a lot of pivotal 
changes and jumps and leaps. And, you know, from my conversation walking from the writing seminar with Justin to kind of Jolie introducing me to Julie um, to, you know, after I left WeWork, I um, did a couple other things we could come back to. But when the presidential campaign was heating up, I was sort of at a pivotal at a moment of deciding what was next. And I just was like, I care so much about this. I don't think I can do anything else. I don't think I would be able to focus on anything else other than this campaign. So I need to find myself a job there. And I just reached out to a couple good friends who were involved with the campaign. And one of them wrote back and said, wait a second, are you serious? We just had something open up that I think you would be perfect for. We need someone to kind of build out and produce our Team Joe Talks program, which is kind of setting up celebrities with campaign surrogates to do IG Live conversations about the issues. And it was like everything I've ever done kind of combined into one thing. It was like, wait, I can do that. And I got to like take things I actually knew how to do and play a role in the last few months of the campaign, which was literally a dream come true. And it happened because of friend. And then one of my best friends from WeWork, Maria Camella, was the one who said, and our, our friend Maria and our friend Catesby had gone from WeWork to Clear, and they said, hey, let, you should come over here. Let's come, come talk. And um, so I just think it goes back to, like, your friends, your relationships really matter. And invest in them and be true to them because they will help you move forward. Yeah, and I think a lot of people struggle taking the long view with their career. They think very short term. It's like, oh, this person was my manager. It was a bad relationship. And look, I, I can't give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but context, environment, you just never know. And um, I just, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of try to be on everyone's good side. I've definitely not succeeded at that. Um, but as I've gotten older, I'm not going to say wiser, but older, um, I've kind of become more aware of that because I've gotten to see it. Yeah. And that these, um, you know, Cal Newport is a great writer, uh, calls a career capital mm. and it is, you know, it's these investments and it is career capital, these relationships, um, you know, they, they pay off and I'm sure the, you know, that you worked on, you know, in the white house, uh, you know, earlier in your career, mm-hmm. maybe you even cross paths with some of those people. I'm, you know, to getting to work on a presidential campaign that that won a successful presidential campaign. Yes. On top of that, I think is pretty remarkable. It, I mean, it was it was a real thrill, and it really like the, uh, there is like a thread of people I I met in all different kinds of places that led into that, and um, you know, even being here. Honestly, you may or may not remember, but you and I didn't really ever work together directly. And when things were sort of wrapping up at WeWork, I was like, all right, I need to like just have some conversations with some good, smart people and figure out what I want to do next and take a second. And I just kind of cold slack, I think like texted you or emailed you and was like, hey, we don't really know each other, but I hear such great things. I want to know you. Can we get coffee? And you wrote right back. And we're like, yep, same, great, next week. I remember. I remember we went and had coffee at Black Fox downtown. Yeah, 
exactly. And I was like, uh, you were then very kind to meet with my wife around some business idea she had with content and it was really cool. And then, you know, I think it's kind of like this investment in relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think, I don't think you're giving enough, you're yourself enough credit, uh, maybe going back to that college theme uh, on your deliberateness, right? It's like, oh, I got lucky, you know? No, you reached out to the person. It just like consistently, it seems like you were really doing a very cool balance of strategic and opportunistic action. Right. Wow. You had an idea of where you wanted to go, but then you were also like very open to like what the world would present to you. And, yeah. um, I don't know, I think it, you've had a really, well, you're still having, you've got a lot of work ahead of you, um, uh, but a really cool <laughs> career. A lot of work ahead of me, but, um. well, thanks so much for the time. I, I appreciate it so much. I, you know, you and I, I think are, are talkers, we could do this for hours. Um, yeah. but if folks wanted to follow along with your work or anything you wanted to share with them where they, they could, mm -hmm. you know follow along with the amazing things you're doing? How do they find you? I am pretty active on Twitter and Instagram. Um, at Laura Brownstein, you'll get to see my Wordle score and what my kitten is, what mischief my kitten is making, and also maybe some more career-relevant content as well. But awesome. Jake, this is great. Congrats with like what you're doing with Teal. When you told me the idea, I was like, it was one of those like clicks, like, we need that. That is smart. I'm so glad you're doing it. And, you know, I love listening to podcasts and stories about people's trajectories. So I'm psyched for this. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. I'm excited for everyone to hear your story. Thanks, Dave. And that's it for this episode of Nonlinear. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you're listening to the show. You can learn more about Teal on our website, tealhq.com. That's teal like the color, T-E-A-L-H-Q.com. Or follow us on social media at teal underscore HQ. Thank you so much for joining us. And please tune back in to keep hearing about how we make the decisions that shape our career. The Teal Career Paths podcast is produced by Rainbow Creative with senior producer Matthew Jones and editor and associate producer Drew McPowell. You can find more information on them at rainbowcreative.co. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.